The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks, and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. The decades before the Civil War saw the first great generation of American literature, first in the New England of Emerson, Hawthorne, Longfellow, Thoreau, Hawthorne, Stowe, Alcott, Dickinson, and others, then in the New York City of Walt Whitman and Herman Melville. These writers created an optimistic intellectual climate that saw potential in every human being, and they generally welcomed the Civil War as a step toward human freedom. But the war, in turn, destroyed their optimism and swept many of them from the literary scene. We'll find out how this happened from Professor Randall Fuller, author of From Battlefields Rising, How the Civil War War Transformed American Literature, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina on a beautiful spring evening in 2014. But I'm speaking not for the university, not for the university system, not for the Department of History, but just for myself, as I know our guest will do uh, tonight, as happens every week. Well, this week, the first 
order of business is to send out congratulations to my daughter Caroline, who this past Saturday graduated from Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. Uh, thus joins Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and Oliver O. Howard, among others known to listeners of this show, as alumni of Bowdoin College. Uh, also, uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, people relevant to tonight's discussion, uh, great literary figures. It's always interesting to visit uh, the campus at Bowdoin and, and just feel the history in every uh, in every uh, building, in every walkway, and think of who has been there before. And it was interesting, certainly, to hear the graduation uh, uh speeches and uh, various orations from different people, and to contrast the values and uh, purposes of a small liberal arts college with those of a large regional state university like East Carolina University. Um, There are commonalities, but there are certainly differences as well. The degree to which the Bowdoin students feel that they have the courage and freedom to go out and live life and try things and do things with the sense that one way or another they'll be able to fall back on something and eventually make money, Uh, they will not starve, is contrasted with the view uh, that many have of the university education at a place like ECU, uh, certainly the governor's view, that we are here to train people for jobs And the idea of liberal arts education is just a a sort of excess frill that the taxpayers ought not to be paying for. It strikes me that the truth ought to be somewhere in between uh, the Bowdoin graduates, including my daughter, will need to get jobs. Uh, uh, I've already explained to Caroline that I'm planning to put a large model railroad umpire up in her room, uh, so she's not moving back there anytime soon. But At the same time, our students here at ECU ought to take courses in history that aren't going to lead them straight to a job as a historian, but will give them a life that will allow them to benefit maybe in later years from spending an hour listening to Civil War talk radio or doing something else that doesn't uh, make money, but hopefully makes them uh, uh, more interesting and more interested people uh, and just have better lives. Well... Anyway, congratulations to Caroline, congratulations to all of ECU's graduates earlier this month, and we move forward. Congratulations to graduates everywhere around the country at all the institutions where all of our speakers are from. Not all of them are from uh, universities. Uh, Next week, we will have another professor, Rachel Sheldon, will join us uh, talking about Washington Brotherhood, the Uh, life, the social and political life in Washington, D.C. before the war and how uh, a group of politicians could get along, uh, argue, but not not fatally until 1861 when when partisanship becomes warfare. Uh, Following that, June 11th, uh, Marvin Nicholson is Sergeant Major of Battery B, 2nd Light Artillery, United States Colored Troops Artillery. Uh, He will be joining us to talk about that, the original uh, Battery B, Second second Light Artillery of the USCT, and also talk about the uh, the reenacting world. 
And then on June 18th, Bjorn Skaptesen from the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop will be with us, and he'll talk about his uh, role leading tours at Shiloh, as well as uh, running a program, something like this, the uh, Civil War in Lincoln uh, book uh, video uh, book signings that, that the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop puts on. So he and I will just talk shop for an hour, how we find our guests and convince them to come on the show. I uh, hope that will be interesting uh, for you as it will be for me. You can find out as you can each week, what's happening next at www.impedimentsofwar.org. Mark Gaffney is in charge there, keeps everything up to date, um, keeps the PayPal button functioning if you want to send money uh, to me to uh, no longer to pay Bowdoin College. We're done with that. Now it's University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for Maria's next four years. I will be reminding you of your uh, opportunity to fund someone else's education, or as I've said before, I can use it for anything I want. It's not a charity. It's not a tax-deductible donation. I can buy uh, really any any commercial product known uh, with with your donations, but mostly I use them to buy books that I read and, and talk about on the show, so there's some connection there. Uh, so feel free to do that. Check out the website, see who's coming up donate uh, and otherwise uh, stay on top of things. Let's get back to the 19th century now and talk with our guest tonight. He is uh, Professor Randall Fuller, author of From Battlefields Rising, How the Civil War Transformed American Literature. Uh, Professor Fuller, are you there? I am, and delighted to be here. Well, thank you for joining me. Uh, we got to correspond a little bit by first name. Uh, is Randy or Randall appropriate Randy for you? Randy is fine. Great, and please call me Jerry. Uh, well, uh, I mentioned uh, it's graduation season here at East Carolina. Uh, uh, tell me about your uh, day job. What, uh, uh, what's going on uh, where you are? Well, uh, first of all, congratulations to Caroline from for graduating from uh, Bowdoin, which which was the alma mater of both uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne and and Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and a lot of other uh, wonderful writers over the years. I am the uh, Chapman Professor of English at the University of Tulsa. Um, We are a private school along the lines of Bowdoin uh, with a student body of about 4,500 students total. And I went through graduation exercises about three weeks ago. Uh, now, I think I said Emerson instead of Hawthorne in the introduction. Or, or when I was, and, and I have to correct that before we go any further. Uh, I knew a bunch of old famous people went to Bowdoin. Yeah, that's that's all right. I remember. Emerson went to Harvard, but, but uh, Hawthorne and, and Longfellow both went to Bowdoin. That's right. Mentioning Harvard allows me to uh, remind uh, listeners that I have a degree from Harvard, which I try to do at least once a month <laughs> to try to get some some recompense out of that. Um, the uh, I didn't know that Tulsa was a uh, a private school. It, it, yes. it sounds like uh, uh, sounds like it isn't, but uh, very interesting. Is now I'm trying to think. Is Tulsa in the Conference USA? It is. Uh, that is exactly so, right. 
Okay, so and East Carolina is moving out of the conference in and sports. so is Tulsa actually. Are they also moving to the the American Athletic Association? They're, they're, they're moving. Uh, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I, I believe they're moving to the Western Conference. Interesting. The yeah. uh, everything is uh, all that is solid melts into air in college football. Everyone's going to a new conference next year. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, so, uh, teaching English, uh, I, I do want to get to the 19th century, but I have to throw this out while we're chatting. Uh, I was looking at the Chronicle of Higher Education today, and there's a, a column from a, I, I think he said he was a 40-year-old professor who's complaining that students today are apathetic and... Uh, just not not committed. That, unlike the way they were ten years ago, when uh, he he was a thirty year old professor, and they were all he could really relate to them, and they were all gung ho, and everything was fine. And now the students are all not so good. And I, it struck me as a remarkably unself aware piece by uh, someone who doesn't realize that he's the one who's gotten older. Uh, but I, I, how are the students at uh, uh, at your place? Yeah, the students are wonderful, and I, I I would agree that probably that that piece probably reflects more upon the change in the author than <laughs> than in the students. Um, I certainly don't find them um, apathetic. Um, they they're they're just almost uniformly a, a lively and and curious uh, group of young people who who are to some extent worried about the future, but at the same time are also um, excited to learn not just the academic disciplines, but to, but to just learn about life and to meet new friends. And, and so my sense is that, um, and I've been teaching for 15 years, my sense is that students haven't um, changed uh, dramatically in, in that time. Um, the, the only thing that may have changed is that, as, as your listeners will know, um, tuition just keeps rising. So they're so that yes. you know they get increasingly nervous. I think about um, how they're going to pay for college either now or when they graduate. But otherwise, it, it's a wonderful group of students. Do they have any particular interest in the Civil War? Uh, is, they and, and if so, do they have a regional? Feeling about uh, it? Well, you know, I, I used to teach in Missouri, and that topic was much more fraught there, um, mm-hmm. where there actually was still the resonances of, uh, of of regional and you know very partisan um, and, and and split guerrilla kind of uh, you know memories. Um, I don't see that so much in Oklahoma, where um, there there was there wasn't a significant battle. There were there were a couple of small skirmishes, um, and Oklahoma, of course, wasn't a part of the United States um, during the Civil War. So so that there seems to be a slightly different um, attitude toward the war. Um, I do find the students are really. They, they are drawn to that that conflict, um, and that they they are always um, the first to draw connections between the war and and present day America. Which I'm not a historian, but if I was, that would make me that would warm my historian's heart. I think. 
it, it, it definitely does when students make those connections. How, how, not being a historian, what drew you to writing this book about literature in the Civil War? Well, I, I, I specialize in 19th century American literature, so I'm, I'm quite fond of, of the authors that I ended up writing about in the book. Um, I just remember one day browsing or, you know, the university stacks um, as a young professor and looking at the American literature section and noticing this, this peculiar gap, which was there wasn't a lot written about American literature and the Civil War. The, the war itself is, of course, one of the most written about historical events, is the most written about historical event in, in America. Um, but books about American literature during that time are, are fairly rare. There are a couple of really good ones, but there, but there aren't that many of them. And the reason why is because uh, when English professors began to study American literature in the first place uh, and look to founding documents like Emerson's Self-Reliance or Henry David Thoreau's Walden or Walt Whitman's uh, Song of Myself and Leaves of Grass, those works were all written before the Civil War. They were all written in the, mainly in the 1840s and especially in the early 1850s. And then literary historians tended to focus after that period on the rise of realism the realist literature by people like Henry James and Mark Twain, even Stephen Crane and and people like that. Um, But what they ignored by looking at those two periods was this tiny sliver of four or five years in the 1860s uh, during which the war uh, was prosecuted. And looking at that, finding that gap made me curious um, about what the writers that I that I had studied in graduate school and and had taught for ten years or so, what they what they were doing during the Civil War, and I began to simply uh, read the journals and the poetry and the essays and the lectures that that these various writers um, produced during during that period. Well. The result, it seems to me, is a book that's less about literature than it is about people, about these actual writers and why there's this sharp break from one style to another. Uh, We're going to take a short break and come back and talk about uh, that really interesting question. Uh, But first, we will step aside momentarily. Uh, Our guest today, Randall Fuller, is the author of From Battlefields Rising. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich talking with Randall Fuller, author of From Battlefields Rising, How the Civil War Transformed American Literature. And we were just getting to the the very subject of the subtitle in our first segment, uh, this transformation between the literary world of Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne that uh, every English major learns about uh, the, the antebellum American writers, and then the the post-war era uh, of of realism, which does not, uh, which includes some Civil War figures, uh, Ambrose Bierce, uh, Mark Twain, has some tangential war experience, uh, uh, but. There, this break is so dramatic, and no one has really explained why it happened. Uh, maybe historians aren't interested enough in literature, and uh, literary scholars aren't as historically minded, but it seems like that's what you've tapped into here. Um, the, 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 before the war, these, the, the literary world of New England seems to be... Uh, I said in the introduction that they they welcome the war, 
Uh, is that overstating? Is that uh, a, a fair enough thing to say? That is that is a very fair thing to say, with, with a couple of caveats. There there were at least two writers who had um, some reservations about the uh, about the war, and that was Her- those were Herman Melville and Nathaniel Hawthorne. But in general, the the New England literary culture uh, before the war was enormously excited about uh, the potential for um, ending slavery. Uh, for emancipation of the slaves. And the reason that they were um, uh, so invested in, in that, that movement or that, that idea was because they were the first generation of American writers that had tried to create a uniquely new national literature. Um, when when Ralph Waldo Emerson gave his um, his talk uh, at the Harvard Phi Beta Kappa um, ceremonies in uh, the late 1830s, called the uh, American Scholar, people who heard that talk said, "This is our intellectual declaration of independence." And so there was this idea that people like um, Emerson and and Thoreau. Um, and Walt Whitman were articulating for the first time uh, these American values of, of, of individualism, of liberty, of, of democracy, and they were attempting to do it in, in a new kind of writing, a new style of writing. Emerson in The Poet, for example, says, um, why worry about, and I'm, par- I'm paraphrasing here, but why worry about meter what is more important is a meter-making argument. That is, what you feel, what you think um, as the poet is more crucial than those constrained iambic pentameters that they're practicing across the Atlantic in, in England. And another part, then, of, of that literature was um, this idea that American literature might be able to affect a moral revolution in its readers. It would make American readers better people. It would make them more um, aware of, of, of their political um, and their social um, benefits. Uh, this, is, this is why Walt Whitman, for example, um, extols um, the individual as he or she walks along the road in the countryside and communes with nature and, and the higher being and, and a higher being. Um, the idea is at some point, um, if you read this poetry, you're going to become a better person. Um, even the non um, transcendentalist or the, or, or sentimental writers like Harriet Beecher Stowe and her, in her famous 1852 novel, uncle Tom's cabin, what she wanted to do was change the moral compass of her readers so that they realized that freedom should be applied to all um, Americans. And, so, and Dov, with, she had a lot of success with that, too. And she had enormous success with that. And, and, and with that, a literary culture that so valued uh, the individual... Um, the idea of of self-reliance, which doesn't mean being sort of a rugged cowboy, but meant rather listening to the your inner voice um, and acting upon that inner voice, 
um, and valued freedom and wanted to change uh, things uh, so radically. Not surprisingly, that literary culture was very excited um, about the um, issue of slavery, about John Brown, uh, who was supported by Emerson and Thoreau, and then finally by uh, the succession the secession of, of South Carolina and then the rest of the southern states. Emerson said um, in a statement that somewhat foreshadows the famous line in Apocalypse Now, sometimes gunpowder smells good. Uh, the, the, the day after he learned uh, upon the, about the firing upon Fort Sumter. So that is to say the, these writers w- thought that America finally is going to live up to its promise. This, this moral blight of slavery is going to be wiped clean. Um, and, and the millennium is about to arrive. And of course, um, on the one hand, emancipation was a successful outcome of the war. But on the other hand, what they, what they could never anticipate was the enormous human cost of the war. Well, even before the war, they're they're using not just their words and ideas, but you you mentioned uh, uh, in supporting John Brown both in Kansas and then at Harper's Ferry, uh, some of them take an active role. Some of them are active uh, you know, political abolitionists uh, who are are willing to support violent means to to achieve freedom. That's exactly right, um, and they didn't start out that way. In the in the early 1850s, uh, they were like a lot of Americans at that time, uh, hoping for compromise, hoping for uh, some solution that would accommodate bo- both the North and the South. Um, but as the as the events of the 1850s, uh, beginning with the Fugitive Slave Act, but certainly moving into the Kansas-Missouri border wars, um, and the and, and especially important for these uh, people was the caning of, uh, of Senator Charles um, Sumner, who was a personal friend of people like Emerson. When those things occurred, um, uh, violence began to seem like um, maybe not an attractive option, but perhaps the only option um, to, to um, accomplish what they hoped uh, or what they wanted to accomplish. One of the things that struck me uh, again and again reading this, and it just came up when you mentioned Sumner being uh, a personal friend, uh, is how interconnected all these people are yeah. and, and how small uh, – the United States was in 1860, you know, maybe a tenth, the population is a tenth of today's population. Uh, but that makes a huge difference uh, on, on page after page. Well, to take one example, you, you talk about uh, Theodore Winthrop, the uh, young officer. Uh, listeners to the show will remember uh, we, we talked to the author of a book on the Battle of Big Bethel a few months ago. And uh, he is a Union officer killed at that battle on the peninsula in the early months of the war. Uh, after uh, Elmer Ellsworth, you know, the best known officer casualty at the beginning of the war, and uh, and and he was not just a name in a book to these New England authors. They uh, 
there were connections. He was, uh, he, I think you said he lived near uh, Emerson's brother in New York. That's right. Uh, and uh, he's connected to the, the Shaw family, Robert Gould Shaw's family. Uh, that everybody's connected. That's that. That's it. Precisely right. It, it's it's really. Um, I mean, that was one of the pleasures of of writing the book is that I I continually would rummage through an archive or a collection of letters or something like that and discover, by golly, this person knew that person and and I, I was you know continually delighted by that. Uh, you know, one of the things I tell my students is that. Um, the this the kind of the white hot center of of literary America was this tiny town twenty miles west of Boston, Concord, Massachusetts, that had uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson living in it, Henry David Thoreau, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne lived there for a period of time during the war, uh, Louisa May Alcott, and and this is a town of at that time about two thousand people. Um, I and you know I jokingly tell my students I can't think of any concentration of talent like that anywhere else um, except maybe the fact that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were born near each other in Liverpool um, in the a hundred years later, but not only were a number of the you know eminent literary and and political and cultural figures of the time living in just a couple of places such as New York and Boston and Concord but they they all had very wide-ranging correspondence and and they seem to have uh, been very sociable uh, and, and 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 you know they belong to clubs the Saturday club for example uh, where they would bring in any promising young talent and and they just you know it, it was a very convivial and well connected group of people the atlantic monthly is it seems like the the main publication uh, certainly that you talk about in the book in which uh, works of these people get published for the general audience is is there any analogy to what the Atlantic Monthly meant in the 1860s to, is there any analogy today? Uh, or is our media just so fragmented there's nothing yeah, to compare? Yeah, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is, it's a, is it would be like appearing on the John Stewart show. <laughs> um, that is, it, it really, um, although without the laughs, um, but it really... But that would only reach one partisan... Yeah, that's a, that's right, and and the the Atlantic was um, the preeminent intellectual vehicle of of the antebellum period. But as the country inched closer to war, it became um, just like its authors, increasingly radicalized, and so it becomes kind of a niche journal. Um, at some point as well. That is to say, the South, for example, Southern readers um, may subscribe to it um, in 1857 or 58, but by 59 or so, it, they're, they're, they tend to be vilifying it in, in their own journals and, and press. So, so, so actually, John Stewart's Daily Show is, might be a pretty good analogy. 
Yeah, for maybe for the for the Atlantic Monthly in you know October of eighteen fifty nine. So you mentioned there were a couple. Uh, so there were two writers who were not as on board with the idea of war, uh, Melville and Hawthorne. What what held them back? Well, um, both of them were opposed to the institution of slavery. But both of them were much more um, hesitant about radical and rapid transformations in society. Um, One of the ways I think about this is that people like Emerson and Thoreau um, and, and lesser figures like Thomas Wentworth Higginson were, were essayists, and they tended to write in the first person, um, and they tended to extrapolate from their personal experience. And if, if Emerson believed that slavery was wrong, it, it was a fairly short step for him to suggest then that slavery was a universal wrong. Um, Melville and Hawthorne, on the other hand, were novelists, and a novelist's job is to inhabit the different personalities of, of your characters, so that both of them, while being opposed to slavery, align themselves with the North or New England nevertheless worried much more about the social costs of war and the social cost even of emancipation. They couldn't imagine what was going to happen to this suddenly liberated um, African-American population. Where were they going to go? What kind of jobs were they going to perform since they had really not been trained to perform any jobs except those um, uh, in you know in the southern slave society, um, that is to say, they projected themselves into the imagination of or into the lived experience of black people, of southern people, of of uh, border state people, in a way that that the New England abolitionists simply didn't simply didn't do. That Hawthorne's piece uh, chiefly upon war matters. Uh, is is just an amazing example of uh, inhabiting someone else's yeah. uh, view. D- describe that briefly for yeah. So it's a wonderful essay in 1862 in the spring. Hawthorne went down uh, to Washington D.C. and on to um, some of the battlefields in Virginia, uh, as did a lot of writers at that time, because he wanted to see. He wanted to see what the war was about. And he writes an essay for the Atlantic Monthly. And it's a droll essay. It's It's got a bone-dry kind of um, almost sarcasm to it as he reports upon the atrocities that he hears about um, perpetrated by both sides. Um, and at some point in the, in the essay footnotes begin to appear. And these footnotes are signed by the editor, and they say, we've had to cut this section of Mr. Hawthorne's essay because he does not show sufficient patriotism here. Um, 
later on, there's a description of Abraham Lincoln and a footnote a- appears and it said we had to cut much of this description because even though it's accurate, it might not, again, convey the necessary patriotism. Well, many people in um, New England read that essay and were astonished that even the editor of the Atlantic Monthly had the temerity to edit Nathaniel Hawthorne, who at the time was the preeminent and most respected uh, novelist in America. What most of them didn't know was that Hawthorne wrote those footnotes himself. So that is, he played the role of the critic of the war, and then he also sort of humorously censored himself in the voice of, of the pro-abolition Atlantic Monthly. It's a brilliant piece. We're going to take another short break now, come back, talk some more with Randall Fuller, author of From Battlefields Rising. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Randall Fuller, author of From Battlefields Rising, How the Civil War Transformed American Literature. We talked in our last segment about how uh, many New England uh, writers uh, leaned toward abolitionism, supported the war as a chance to actually bring the country closer to its original promise of freedom. Um, not all of them went along. Uh, we, we talked about uh, Hawthorne, for example. Uh, but, Randy, it seems one of the themes that runs through uh, almost every chapter after the first one is the 
the transformation of of these individual writers as as people, uh, as well as 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 authors, uh, as they experience the war uh, uh, vicariously or directly. Uh, Walt Whitman, for example, you know, starts out writing almost bombastic uh, pro-war poetry. Uh, did, can you talk about what what he goes through? Certainly, um, and 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 we could take him as an example of what in in a variety of ways happens to all of these authors. Uh, Whitman was enormously excited when the war started, um, but also enormously anxious about the start of the war. He had hoped to be the national poet, the poet that would be read by all Americans. And that, that, that's a, a lofty and, and a perhaps um, deluded um, uh, career goal, but that's, that's what, he wanted, what, what he wanted and what he hoped to do. And so when, when he learns um, of the uh, firing on Fort Sumter, he, had, he goes through a range of emotions, uh, and, and he's upset at first, but then he quickly becomes excited um, for the Union and the Union cause and begins to write... Um, as you say, very bombastic, almost almost war propaganda poems. Beat beat drums is one of them, and and as you can tell by the title, uh, he's he's really um, beating the war drums. He's 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 trying to get uh, his readers um, fired up for for this conflict. It's my hunch that Whitman actually considered enlisting in the Union Army himself. There, a day or so after um, April 12, 1861, in, in his journal, he writes, I hereby resolve to um, drink only water and eat only vegetables and to get my, my body in good shape. And, and he doesn't say uh, much more than that, but I have, uh, I have a, a hunch that he's considering getting himself ready to join the war. And he, he changes his mind. He decides instead that he will be the, uh, a poet on behalf of the war, and he writes these these bombastic pieces that that I just mentioned. His brother, on the other hand, George Washington Whitman, does enlist in the war. He's the he's a younger brother. He enlists in the war within a week um, after the firing on Fort Sumter, and he ends up serving uh, for a New York infantry uh, company for almost the entire duration of the war. He's in any number of major battles. He, he's at Antietam. He's at Chancellorsville. Um, at, the, at the end of the war, he's actually captured and put in a prisoner of war camp and barely survives um, that ordeal and is actually haunted for the rest of his life by what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, but of his initial... In- company, only a very small percentage survived the war, and he's one of them. One of his, one of his close friends in the, in the uh, company says, you're the luckiest man I ever knew. Well, one day in December 1862, Whitman is at the family house. He lives with his mother and other siblings um, in, a, in a large extended family in Brooklyn, and he opens up uh, one of the New York newspapers, and he sees on the page in a uh, notice that has a black border around it signifying those who have been injured or killed in the war, 
he sees his brother's name. And immediately, uh, Whitman tells his family that he will go uh, to Fredericksburg because that's, that's the battle uh, that Whitman, his brother, has been injured at. He will go and search for George. He, takes a, he, he immediately takes that day a train to Washington, D.C., and he proceeds to go from hospital to hospital asking people if a George Washington Whitman has has. has arrived at the hospital and is told no. But this is the first time he sees actual wounded servicemen uh, in the Civil War. And he then proceeds to the, the battlefield uh, um, of Fredericksburg. And it's, it's just chaos. It's, it's only a, a day or so after the battle has ended. It was a, a tremendous defeat for the Union. There are there are dead horses um, scattered all over the field. The oak trees uh, have been have been cut down by by the sheer number of uh, of many bullets um, and artillery shell. The ground has been churned up, and Whitman immediately um, asks if if anyone knows if his brother is there. And the good news is is that his brother has survived the battle and turns out um, to be relatively okay. He's been shot in the cheek, but he, he's up and moving and they have a quick uh, reunion. But then Whitman says that he would like to go around and, and talk to and interview uh, other uh, veterans uh, of this last battle. And he, he has a little hand-stitched notebook that uh, is now at the Library of Congress and that you can actually look at online where he goes um, around and he sits and talks to various um, soldiers who have just finished this battle. And he he asks them, where are you from? Uh, Which battles have you seen? What was the experience like? And he jots down the things that they say. Toward the end of the day, he comes back to the... Uh, where the field hospital is, and he notices that there are three uh, bodies underneath um, these gray woolen blankets. And he writes then um, in this little notebook his first poem that is based upon his lived experience of seeing a battlefield. And it's this very poignant poem um, in which he simply describes the faces of three people that um, have been recently killed at the Battle of Fredericksburg. Well, the difference between the bombastic, the um, sort of elevated, egotistical Whitman um, before and in the very first days of the war with this chastened Whitman, this this Whitman who writes this, this profoundly descriptive and melancholy um, depiction of death, but without without the, the, the kind of grandiose moral posturing that was so common before the war. That difference is just is stunning. Um, and in one way or the other, it, it affected almost all of the writers that I dealt with because even those who were excited about the war, um, even those who were somewhat realistic, like Melville and Hawthorne about the war, 
none of them could imagine ultimately the cost that the war would exact upon not just the you know the the number changes a little bit the seven let's say 700,000 soldiers mm-hmm. but upon the vastly multiplied uh number of family members back uh home the the uh, you tell a similar story you said that show the same transformation happening with Emerson mm-hmm. uh because his son wants to enlist but they've already lost uh his brother as a as a child yeah. and they don't want to lose another son uh, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Emerson don't and they are reluctant to let him enlist but at the same time there's a sense of uh, you know we helped start this war we probably should make the same sacrifice I was struck by how I, similar that was to Abraham Lincoln's situation with Robert Lincoln yeah. and Harvard wanting yeah. to enlist and Lincoln wanting his son to enlist, but Mrs. Lincoln, having lost uh, Willie in 1862, not wanting to lose another son. And this must have been played out in tens of thousands of homes across the country, north and south. Uh, but what this does, is with with Whitman, it creates this, this wonderful elegiac poetry that is so different. But by 1865, these people who dominated American literature are are silenced practically. They they don't write new stuff after this. That's right. Um, for some of them, that's a function, um, perhaps, uh, of just getting older. Certainly, in the case of of Emerson, by the time the war is over, um, his his best writing simply is over. Um, and has been for for some time, but for a writer like Nathaniel Hawthorne, the war effectively silenced him. He he claimed that he needed a kind of peaceful, imaginative space in order to create his short stories and then his wonderful novels like The Scarlet Letter um, and The Blythdale Romance. Um, and the war completely disrupted that. It completely disabled him from from uh, from being able to write um, fiction. So uh, he 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 was literally silenced um, by the war. With only a couple minutes left, uh, this is not a question you address in your book uh, because it's not about the literature that emerges from the war. But is is there a great piece of literature? Is there a, a great writer who does emerge from the experience of war itself? That's a, that's a really wonderful question. Um, and, and for me, the answer is, is, is kind of yes and no. Um, and, and what I mean by that is um, there, there are no towering figures in the post-war era of the 19th century who served in the war. You mentioned Twain, and, and Twain did have a, a kind of fleeting infatuation mm-hmm. with, with, a, with a, a little Confederate um, group, but he, mm-hmm. he lasted about a week and then promptly hightailed it west. Um, and, and some of the other towering figures like Henry James um, and William Dean Howells, for example, um, 
did not serve in the war, and then later great figures like Theodore Dreiser or Stephen Crane or Edith Wharton, of course, they were born after the war and, and only experienced it in the stories of, of their parents. But on the other hand, all of those writers and, and many more, it seems to me, were the product of the Civil War because what they determined after the war was that they were going to write a different kind of literature. And it wasn't going to be a literature that attempted to affect a moral revolution, or it wasn't going to be a literature that articulated uh, high ideals. It was going to be a literature that focused instead upon the relationships between human beings. Um, And there's this distrust of the great cause after the Civil War that means that a writer like Mark Twain, who's who's got that great deflating rapier wit um, that just pokes a hole in everybody's pretensions, or Henry James, who writes about um, human relationships, uh, you know, b- between men and women, um, marriages and things like that, um, they're not, they simply have abandoned the idea that they're going to write literature that is about truth with a capital T or beauty with a capital B or justice with a capital J. It, it is, it, in that sense, really a remarkable transformation. Uh, I wish we had a lot more time to talk about this. I've, uh, it, it's great uh, for me as a historian when uh, literary scholars write about the war, when uh, art history people write about the war, it's a chance to learn something completely new and um uh, this book really, uh, for anyone listening to the show, reflects the wartime experience through a prism that uh, many of us probably haven't looked through before. Uh, and it's beautifully written. I, I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, I, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but uh, we're at the end of our time. So thank you so much, uh, Randy, for being on the show. And thank you. It's been my pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm